Well, good morning, Tree Bible Church. As well as guests uh, who are here today, we are thankful you're here to participate in, in public worship uh, with this local assembly. We are continuing this morning in the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, this morning's central focus will be uh, chapter 19, verses 7 through 12. Uh, but what I'll be reading, 19, 1 through 12, just to get a, a fuller context of what we're covering today. Uh, and I don't, I don't often do this, but this is a, a few times probably in Matthew. This is a subject that is not easy to talk about, not easy to perhaps hear, uh, depending um, on how your life has played out. Uh, but the reality of divorce, the reality of its effect on uh, those in the church and the ideal standard that Christ points us to marks where we are in God's word today. And therefore, as I teach it this morning, some of you may disagree vehemently with some of the positions I take. And I just say this earnestly, I, I understand. And I would rather have a conversation with you about whatever those differences might be on Monday. Please do not charge the mound after the service, and ultimately may we come to a greater understanding of God's word may be made clear to us through the power of the Spirit. I'll be reading the in verses 19, 1 through 12. Um, after that reading, I ask you to take a time uh, of private prayer, as we always do before we enter into the time of the word, and I will pray uh, corporately for the gathering before we enter into the time of teaching. But reading now from 19, 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. A Pharisee came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, not only those to whom it is given, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, as your church gathers here on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, our Savior and Redeemer. We come to celebrate through the time of of prayer. We celebrate through praise that we give through corporate song. We celebrate through our shared union we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit in our fellowship with one another. We will later share in this communal meal of the Lord's table. And now we come to the ministry of the word. Your self-disclosure to your people. The truth of who you are and who we are. Lord, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, for those who are, have come to faith and are a part of the redeemed of Christ, the word now speaks to us with eyes that are opened, minds that are clear, hearts that are receptive, made so in regeneration. Now, Lord, your people are yet sinners. And while you have conquered sin and death and given us the spirit to where we can fight temptation and flee from sin, yet we fail. Lord, show us through your word this morning the ways in we may renew our hearts and minds, turn our affections to Christ alone, by the power of the Spirit and the Word. We ask now, move your people to a place of and a heart of worship as we continue this time of corporate gathering. May your name be glorified. May your people be both confronted and comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The central aspect of this teaching that will come up about divorce, remarriage, and celibacy is all focused on this first area of Jesus' rebuke of the teachers of this time on how they interpreted a clause in what we call the book of Deuteronomy about a certificate of divorce. And I want you to always, for the rest of your life, whenever divorce comes up in a discussion centered around this or any text in the New Testament, remind yourself and whoever you may be talking to, Jesus points this discussion not to Moses, but back to Adam and Eve in the institution of marriage in a pre-fall condition. In that the covenant, the binding aspect of the marriage in this pre-fall state is the standard he calls his people to look to. If you look to the culture around you at any time 
in the history of the church as the standard of how you look and view at marriage, oh boy, will you be disappointed. And yet that's exactly what the church has done throughout history. Uh, Modern aspects of divorce and remarriage within the church shock us when we hear the statistics of of matching unbelieving people or or non-Christian people when it comes to rates of divorce. We're right there or even a little bit worse. Yet in the history of the church, it, it really hasn't been that different. The frivolity in the way that people viewed marriage while speaking highly of it, while, while in the background reviling one another. But the standard that, that Christ gives this question is a reminder that God made them male and female. Adam created from the dust, like all of the other created creatures, created things, And the creator puts a deep sleep on him because no companion rightfully or suitably has been found for him. And so he takes Adam's side, often just thought of as a rib, but the word just means side or flesh, takes of that side and creates woman from the flesh of man. And the language is very specific that when they two become one, It's exactly what was missing from man that has now been returned to him. That's where the language comes from as it ends with, let no man separate what God has put together. Now man and woman are whole. They are one. It's a covenant bound by the flesh. And that is why the word divorce means to cut away. It's the opposite of what God gives in Genesis 2 for marriage is that now man has determined to cut away what God has put together. And so going all the way to the, the, the question, which of course you know of any reading of, of the Gospels, the Pharisees come, the Sadducees come, the scribes, all of these opponents, all these teachers of the law are coming to try and discredit Jesus' ability to teach soundly from the law or from the prophets or from the writings in order to discredit him as a teacher since he has now gathered a following. He has his own disciples. And so they come to him, one that was very near and dear to both the first century Jew all the way back for thousands of years. This clause in Deuteronomy on giving a certificate of divorce. And so what they ask is, in 7, after Jesus answered by quoting or or alluding to Genesis 2, no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So what they're basically doing is saying, we got him. We finally got him. He says, no divorce. And they said, oh, what about Moses? And so if you want to, let's turn and read that. Or you can just listen to me because I'll read it. It's in Deuteronomy 24. You'll, you'll see the following clause. When a man takes, and starting in one, a wife and marries her, 
If then he finds no favor in his, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she goes and departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and she will not bring sin upon the land. So the clause here that was contested by the Jews and abused by the Jews for so long was, no favor in his eyes because of some indecency in her. Now, the language in the Hebrew is very clearly speaking of some type of sexual immorality. The reality was during this time and throughout most of the ancient Near Eastern history, engagement in Western culture today, if like I love that woman. I'm going to ask her to marry me. First, I have to talk to her father. This is going to be really fun. And then he says yes, or if even I catch a mood of yes, I'm going to go still go for it. And I'm going to ask her to marry me. She's going to have a ring on her finger. And for a time, there'll be a waiting period, essentially, until the wedding is planned. In modern time, that's way too long. Like, like, like get married fast. Sorry for the parents who might be grumbling about it. Get married fast. Don't spend an outrageous amount of money. Save that and put a down payment on the house. You're welcome. And so so you have all of these things. Of course, my daughter's seven, and, 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 and that might change in a while. Like, I'm not sure about this. This engagement should at least be, you know, and maybe something will happen to him. And so... But the reality was is that in this culture, engagement equaled marriage. Betrothal, there was a period of time where the families would make a financial agreement between their son and their daughter, and they would be chosen to marry one another. Now, that son and daughter would know that, that that was their future husband or wife. They had no say in it. And yet, if... After the marriage, it was found out she, which is the subject here, had already been with a man, then he could write her a certificate of divorce due to some type of indecency. The indecency aspect has a a language to it that's describing immorality in some way, yet the way it came to be interpreted in the time of Jesus was more of... This, for, this part that precedes it. No favor in his eyes. Meaning, how this would be interpreted in this time was that anything that a wife might do that might displease them, their husband, including clauses in Mishnah about what could only be interpreted today as mouthiness. See, I didn't didn't say anything afterwards. (laughs) Mouthiness. Being unable to satisfy him by what they prepared as a meal. Like these were real things. 
that in the time of Jesus, and if, it, if it's that frivolous, imagine how many others there were. And so the men saw it as a part of the religious life. And it was a good thing. And you'll notice the language they use when they ask Jesus, why did Moses command us to? The idea that it was Moses' idea, like, you know, it's a good idea. It's like, you guys should, should be able to go ahead and divorce all your wives if they don't cook a good meal. And the reality is that that's the opposite of what that clause is there for. Women in this time of Jesus had no rights. Women in the time of Moses had no rights. And so what was the certificate for? you're going to see the reality of it was for the woman's ability to be remarried in a legal sense. So she wouldn't be viewed as a harlot or viewed as an adulteress and all these things. Because the divorce was legal, because he had handed her a certi certificate that he had cut her away from himself and set her free, which both divorce means kind of both things, like, and then now, because she had this certificate, she was able to remarry and not be considered an adulteress. And this is where Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. The standard is Edenic in, in ideal. Pre-fall, man and woman put together by God for the purpose of glorifying him in their union. And in that union, the way that they treat one another, the way they raise their children, the way they go about their day is in all aspects a type of worship that is reflecting back to the God who has put them together. But Jesus has the answer. Why did he command us? And in eight, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you. See the exchange? Moses not commanded you. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And here it is. But from the beginning, it was not so. He responds by saying, why did Moses allow you, not command you, allow you to divorce? Because of your hardness of heart. This is two Greek words put together and it, and it essentially comes out to coldness, stubbornness. It's used over and over again. It's used in, in, the, in the Old Testament, in places like Jeremiah 4, where, where God is repudiating his people and telling them to circumcise their hearts. It shows this idea of this unyielding way. And it's... And it's tied to the idea of evil. Because of the hardness of your hearts, knowing meaning that they were going to divorce their wives, it was given this ability to do it in a legal sense so that the women might have a way to continue. Moses didn't command them in some frivolous way to divorce their wives. And now Jesus has to confront what during this time 
when you're thinking of the, the kind of the social aspects of, of Judaism and even the broader world around him, he now is about to kind of turn everything upside down by what he's going to teach. Number one, it's for your own, it's because of sin that this was put into the law. It's because of your hardness, your coldness, your stubbornness before God that you would treat the one who you had been sealed together with by God and put them aside as if they were worthless shows the evil in your heart even though you're one of God's people. This hardness of heart is is this, this same word is actually used in Mark 16 at the end. When he rebukes, Jesus has resurrected. He rebukes his own disciples for their lack of faith and their hardness of heart for not believing, even after seeing him resurrected. It shows the reality, if of anything, never underestimate your ability to sin. Never underestimate your ability to flee the clarity of God's word for whatever might be stirring in that still broken heart of yours. People convince themselves all the time, that one's the problem. This condition is the problem. Everything around me is a problem. And they never notice. Have you, you almost want to say, have you noticed that everything in your life is a problem except you? I just want to say that's pretty miraculous. <laughs> and also not true. But look at what Jesus does with this. Again, the standard. He points them back. In, in, in the previous verses that we covered, he, he alludes and quotes Genesis 1 and 2. In the pre-fall condition of the first marriage. And when they ask him about, what about the divorce certificate? He says, because you're evil. It's because your hardness of heart is because you're rebels against God. This was a, they guardrails to make sure that, that God's covenant people, the, the women in particular, were protected against callous men. But then he he continues, but in the beginning it was not so. Look back to the standard, not what you're doing now. And then this is where the crushing blow comes for what they saw in the Jewish world as what a man's uh, ability to divorce was. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. There go all the, you see people in the background, but she was mouthy. Her, the bread was burnt. Jesus is like, what's the standard? The standard is covenant fidelity because God has put you together. No man will cut apart what God has put together. And unless that covenant is sundered here in, in essence using 
Deuteronomy 24 and the language that's used of indecency. So not only does he tell them, he wrote that because of your hardness of heart, he's also telling them what it's talking about is sexual immorality or committing adultery. Outside of that, there is no legal reason for divorce. And he's not just saying no legal reason for divorce. He's also then stamping what is a legitimate means for remarriage. And I know this is where it gets painful. But outside of this, the the example given is, is the standard of never cutting away, of no divorce. Jesus is being clear with that. He even uses the text of the time to say, that's not giving you an excuse to divorce any way you want. That's talking about immorality. That's talking about a breaking of the covenant. But even then, Jesus is still saying the standard is marriage. Even the allowance for adultery and divorce with adultery is still the allowance of the hardness of heart. That's hard. But at all times, Jesus is pointing to the standard. The marriage of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. And now looking forward to the future as as the, the, the Christian man and woman are to look to the marriage of the Lamb as the standard. Even in these circumstances, staying married is the standard. But he gives an allowance for what is in essence sexual immorality, Some of you may be thinking, well, there's other things too. What about Paul in 1 Corinthians 7? Thank you for asking. 1 Corinthians 7 is probably one of the longest instances of writing on marriage, Christian marriage, in all the New Testament. So I want to go through a few of the things that Paul mentions because divorce is mentioned by sexual immorality and Paul mentions one other way, which has to be addressed to have a full view of of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now this is a church that has, in this first letter, struggled with what you would call, even as a group, even as a local assembly, taking seriously the idea of having any kind of real ethic about marriage and morality. And you see that in the previous two chapters. But now in 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. 
but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, we're not at the divorce part yet, but I can't read that and not share one of the more alarming trends in Christian marriage today, which I only will call a zombie marriage. A marriage suffering from living death, where there is no physical relationship between husband and wife. And it generally goes, one of the two, or maybe both, have sinned against the other. And a grudge is held. Or there's no repentance. Or they just enter into a time of mutual agreement of that this is just who we are. And it's a sad reflection of what can only be viewed as what became popular in sitcoms in the 80s. Husband and wife living together, but completely separate. Putting on a show on Sunday morning. Hating each other every other day of the week. How do you get there? How do you agree to stay there? Well, Paul gives an example here in the beginning. Is it begins at some point where the physical relationship of the marriage, the consummation aspect of it, the two becoming one and all of this kind of imagery, ceases. And then indefinitely damages the marriage to a point where both husband and wife just don't care anymore or have come to a place of deep grievance against one another. And because they believe we're Christians and we're in a church and no one can know about this, no one can know we live this way, please, 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 if this is you, get help. Talk to an elder. Talk to more than one elder. Talk to, begin to pray and find a way through this. Think of the standard. Think of the garden. Stop holding on to hurts, especially if your spouse has truly repented of them. If they have, and you continue to grind them into nothing over something that happened a decade ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, shame on you. What happened to the gospel of grace? What happened to forgiveness? Don't say you forgive someone and don't mean it. Tell them, I'm having a hard time forgiving you right now. That's why I'm acting the way I am. Okay, I, I, I understand that. But don't say I forgive you and hate them. This is one of the biggest recorded kind of confessions in all of, of um, Christian pewing, if you will, in terms of questions of marriage and relationship with marriage, which you can only describe as a dead marriage. And the effect that has on children. 
your children. Don't embrace this type of life. Rigorously work yourself through it. See divorce as not an option, but rather the standard. Paul writes in 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, which meaning single, he is unmarried, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, meaning unmarried women and widows, meaning those whose husband had died, are free to remarry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is a clarity of thought, especially when Paul says, this isn't from me, this is from the Lord. And Paul is is invoking Christ's teaching on divorce by saying, if a woman is separated from her husband, she should live as if she were single and not get remarried. Just as that husband should not divorce or give her a certificate of divorce, they should remain married. And what is that that they should attempt to do? Remain unmarried or be reconciled. Meaning, not under this idea of whatever it might be, but like even if you are separated from one from the other, Divorce should not be the answer. Not getting remarried is the answer. There's a seriousness about marriage that's displayed here by Christ and now here by Paul. It's like this should be viewed as forever. When you take your vows, till death do you part. I mean, hopefully most of you have that in your vows. And not till she cooks a bad meal or till his hair falls out. I thought that would get more laughter. (laughs) They're like, well, I don't know. It's a big one. No. Remain unmarried or be reconciled. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him. He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy or sanctified because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So he sets a standard. Say a person or a, family, a husband and wife are married and the husband or the wife come to faith and the other one does not come to faith. He's saying that doesn't give you a right to cut them away. No, rather stay married to them because who knows? And that's the next thing. They have also have a bit of protection or they're sanctified in a way because you have the Holy Spirit. Your children are protected in that same manner because you have the Holy Spirit and you are the elect of God. 
And then so look at the following. Going down to 16. For do you know your how do you know your wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? Meaning you don't know whether or not through your faith God will draw your spouse to faith. And so he gives another clear thing. It's not like the Old Testament when they forcibly made families divorce, especially in Ezra and Nehemiah because they were marrying indigenous people that they weren't supposed to do and they forced them to divorce. So there's weird things like that. We were like, what? But he's saying here like, no, much like that, if you've married an unbeliever, stay married to them. But then there's one point here that I passed over on purpose to cover it because it's finally, we're finally getting there about this other condition when it's seemingly okay to divorce. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So he makes two different points of standards, if you will. If you are a believing husband and wife and you become separated, do not get divorced. Rather, be reconciled. But if you have an unbelieving husband or wife and that unbelieving husband or wife separates from you, wants a divorce, whatever it is, Paul's saying in that condition, then it is plausible to have a divorce. Again, not in a means of, he sets the condition. Not, well, I'm a believer and they're an unbeliever, Paul said. No, he said beforehand, read the the other parts. Is that, who knows, they're sanctified by you. They might come to faith by you. But if they leave you, if they abandon you, then you may separate from them. So now we have two. Sexual immorality and abandonment from an unbelieving spouse. One of those is frighteningly more proportional in terms of how it happens than the other. But then throughout the history of the church, theologians and church leaders have struggled with other things. And so abandonment has also had, throughout the years, many other things added to it. Uh, Believe it or not, what's known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, or the Eastern tradition way back in the early church, was the one that first started adding some of these things. And so they put abandonment as the standard. And I'm not saying I agree with these, I'm saying these were things that were put forward. One was incurable insanity. And the meaning behind that was someone who had some kind of condition that led to violent outbursts, whether a husband or a wife. And it meant the higher standard is is the sanctity of life of the other spouse and their children. So it was legal in the Eastern tradition for a husband or wife to separate from their spouse if there was some type of incurable, at that time it was called incurable insanity or violent outbursts that led to which one I think is I'm just saying that was a thing way back when the other one that takes more thought and more consideration when it comes to separation and divorce is physical abuse and under the same idea of the sanctity of life particularly generally not always but generally a husband who physically abuses his wife. 
Now, it's one thing to go, oh, that's not adultery. That's not abandonment. He's not going anywhere. And unfortunately, even today, we have people who will still be like, well, that's just her calling. And if you believe that, I'm not, I'm not going to say it. A husband who will lay his hand on his wife in a violent manner rather than a nurturing manner has already separated from his wife because his mandate to protect and to shepherd, he has betrayed. And so I would agree with the early Eastern fathers that physical abuse of a spouse is abandonment. And a wife and her children should separate. And in the modern setting, if you're being, if you're counseling someone and the husband is, is physically assaulting the wife and the children, you're bound to call the police. I hope you know that. And also provide a place of safety for that woman and her children. Spousal abuse in the other direction doesn't happen at often, but it does. And it's the same principle. There, there's a sundered covenant, particularly in that. So I think that the Eastern Fathers were right. That falls under abandonment. One that's popped up more recent has been what's called spiritual abuse. And this one's a little bit more harder to put your hands on because, because there's this idea of what does that mean? And, and, and so it essentially has this aspect of a husband lording over his wife in a manner that seems abusive. This one, at times, in some of the cases I've read about, I might agree with, but it's also very nebulous. And so what we face now today in the church is this is the new no-fault divorce, if you will, in the church. Spiritual abuse is almost anything that, that might look like my husband is trying to lead me all the way to a man who is very oppressive in every way that he interacts with his wife, as if she were a slave rather than a helpmate. All this to say, if adultery and abandonment are a, a means in which a Christian man or woman can legally, in a legally sense, in a certificate sense, get divorced and walk around that certificate and say, hey, this is how my first marriage ended. I can get remarried. Maybe those are, and they clearly are. Both Paul and Jesus are repeating that. The standard yet remains, if able, if your life is not in danger, to reconcile. And outside of those instances... Remarriage should not be an option. This was the part where I said I was going to say what I think it means, and you might disagree with me and don't charge. It seems clear. It seems explicit. 
and implicit. And the reality being that if this happens and you divorce and these are not an issue of your life is in danger of abandonment or they've left you completely and they were an unbeliever or they've committed adultery and it's some other reason and you divorce, remarriage should not be an option. That's clear in the text. Paul seems to point to this idea of dedicating your life to the church and to the ministry and to other things. I say this with full knowledge that that is not everyone's life and decisions that they've lived or had in their life. And I say this fully so you, I want you to hear with great understanding. Christ knows that as well. And the comfort of the gospel is that all of the decisions we make, all of the sins that we commit, all of the hurt that we place on others through our sinful choices are all washed for the elect. Yet, marriage needs to be taken more seriously. If Sabbath and marriage are the only two things that are established before the fall, it should point us to reality of how important it is in our life and in our witness to the world around us. That means hard work. That means getting hurt. That means forgiveness. That means working through it. That means if you feel you've come to a place where you can't work through it, find other people, like-minded people in the church who also have the Spirit and work through it with them. With hearts of perpetual forgiveness and understanding, I am married to a wretch just like me. Guys, don't put that on Valentine's notes or anything, but make her a t-shirt. I'm a wretch. I'm married to a wretch. As you look around the world and it seems it's falling apart with war and anger, inability for anyone to have an adult conversation anymore, Be reminded that marriage and this this institution is the backbone of the Christian church and civilization itself. And it's worth fighting for. And it's worth keeping for the glory of God and for the sanctification of his people and the witness to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we gather, as we we contemplate your word, as we are convicted by it, as we are reminded of it, of your words, the words of the apostle Paul, we know we fall short. We know we sin. 
We know we go our own way. God, I pray that your people are reminded we know your great mercy. We know your great love. And that your grace and your mercy and love will always outlast our sin. Call us to lives of endurance. Call us to lives of putting your name before our own. God, may you comfort us in the truth of your gospel. That rebellious creatures, sinful creatures, changing creatures are loved and called to redemption by their unchanging, holy creator God. We might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and the word. Our affections turned to you. Our lives lived in a manner that reflects that truth. To the glory of your name we pray. In Christ's name, amen.